meeting is being recorded. This is New Wild Review. This is um, the last podcast, probably, of 2022. So if you're trying to collect the whole set, you'll definitely want to get this one because today we're going to be speaking with one of my personal heroes in this world. And uh, the awesome, primarily, uh, I think of her as a swallow rehabilitator, but she's a songbird rehabilitator working in, the, um, in Sonoma. Sonoma County? Is that where you're at, Veronica? And her name is Veronica Bowers. And uh, I'm just going to briefly let you know, I met Veronica in 2007 when we were both about 13. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was at the Costco Busan oil spill, which was, for those of you who don't know what that means, the vessel Costco Busan, a container ship, crashed into the Bay Bridge in San Francisco Bay and spilled uh, some tens of thousands of its bunker fuel into the Bay in November, just as uh, migratory waterfowl had returned for their wintering grounds of San Francisco Bay. And so it was a, it was a fairly horrible disaster for um, waterfowl in San Francisco that winter. And Veronica came to help wash birds and we worked together for, um, a few weeks and uh, we went through about I guess it was about 1100 birds in eight days or 800 birds in 11 days I'm foggy on the numbers at this point but it was a lot of birds and Veronica was there every day washing birds and is uh, at the time I learned was a songbird expert who uh, was also International Bird Rescue's essential uh, you know a songbird would be the songbird oil oiled songbird response person and uh over time we've worked, we've been together on many uh projects well like especially through like ccwr when we served on the board together and um we're going to talk some about uh wildlife care today and also some advocacy stuff because veronica is a, a leader in both things and uh and without any further ado i'm just gonna introduce Veronica Bowers, who you've been looking at all the whole time, because this is a video podcast. Hey, Veronica, welcome Hi, to the Wild Review. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and you are my personal hero. So it's a real honor to be here chatting with you on your podcast. Thank you oh. for inviting me. Yeah, well, I've, it's something we've been we've been talking about doing this for a while now. And, you know, I really wanted to my, my I really wanted to come do it in person at your facility so that we could just like, we could all look at your beautiful songbird aviaries and stuff like that. And um, so that's been, and unfortunately the pandemic put a, it's just such a crimp in everybody's plans all over the world. I hate to complain about it since I didn't lose anybody to it and, or even get the virus so far. So I hate to complain when it's been so devastating to the world at large. And, uh, yeah. Well, whenever you're in this neck of the woods, I'd love to have you guys stop by for a visit. 
Mm. And we can look at birds. Yeah, that'd be great. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I really uh, came to appreciate about you was the quality of your, um, besides for the care that you provide, which I've, besides other than in that oil spill, you know, we've never worked side by side on doing rehab, wildlife rehabilitation, that is, for those of you who loathe shorthand. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, Veronica Bowers, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, so we will, uh, anyway, uh, your, uh, what I came, what the first one of your, other than washing birds and your dedication and your commitment and your attention to detail and your, uh, stamina, one of the first things I came to really admire about you was the quality of your uh, presentations, because, you know, through CCWR, California Council for Wildlife Rehabilitators and the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, I'd go to conferences and see your presentations on providing care to swallows and especially insectivores. And uh, you're um, championing the uh, insect diet for raising songbird babies. I grew, I grew up as an apprentice where we made slurries for songbirds out of mm-hmm. assorted. Same here. Ick, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And well, can, you you want to talk about that? Yeah, I I would like. You know how much I love talking about that. <laughs> I, do, I do. We're gonna be. We may regret this in about an hour and a half, but. Mm. <laughs> I know you can edit it all out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I cut my teeth, so to speak, on slurries as well. So 20-something years ago, the facility that I started volunteering at was using a concoction of sorts um, with no scientific basis other than one of the primary ingredients was a hand rearing formula for domestic birds. And then they added a bunch of other crap in there. And I think that was, it was probably the first two years that I was with that facility, just kind of getting to know this whole process of wildlife rehabilitation. And they were an all bird facility. Obviously the majority of their patients consisted of songbirds. And uh, every summer, there's just mass die-off of the baby birds for a whole lot of reasons. But as I came to learn, the nutrition they were offering had a lot to do with it. Birds are always filthy. They were always um, small and just kind of poorly developed looking. And the ones that did survive seemed like they were in care forever. And somewhere after my second season, I saw a, I think it was a newsletter maybe, or one of the journals um, at the intake desk of this particular facility from the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association. And it was all about this conference that they were gonna be having in the spring. So I had no idea that such a thing even existed, that there was actually an association for wildlife rehabilitators. And there was all this great content listed and it had it broken out by uh, 
groups of animals that wildlife rehabilitators would probably be specializing in. And there were veterinary topics. And I mean, I, my brain exploded. I, I just thought, I think there might be a lot of um, answers here that I have big questions about. And I remember there was a topic called, um, it was something about avian nutrition and the woman's name, the presenter's name was Janine Perlman. And she was going to be talking about a diet called the Mac diet. So I talked to the director of animal care at the facility and I said, you know, I, I saw this information. I'm really interested in going to this symposium. And she said, oh, great, I'm going too. So we went together and I learned about the Mac diet and I learned about what a growing passerine needs to develop properly. And Janine's whole mantra was, a science-based peer-reviewed mantra was that these little critters out in the wild are fed insects by their parents. And therefore, when they are in our care, we should strive to emulate as natural of a diet as possible for them because this is what their bodies have evolved to assimilate those nutrients and foster healthy growth and development, both of their physical body, but of their behavioral body as well. Uh -huh. So if they're not physically well-developed, they're also behaviorally not going to be well-developed. And um, got back from the symposium full of all kinds of ideas and really continuing to think about this whole idea of the MAC diet and how it's protein profile was the highest that you could possibly achieve in any formulated diet. And she also struck, um, advocated strongly for feeding live insects in tandem with this diet, that if you wanted to achieve maximum nutrition, so this was over 20 years ago, mind mm -hmm. you, I'm starting to sound really old, I realize, <laughs> but um, anyway, so feeding live insects as well as the formula was gonna help you achieve optimal growth, um, optimal results in development for these young growing passerines who grow faster than any other organism that we're gonna have in care in a wildlife facility. They go from egg to adult size practically in about three weeks. That takes some hardcore nutrition. Uh -huh. And why at that point she wasn't ready to just say, hey, get rid of the formula crap and go insects all the way was simply because she hadn't figured out how to formulate the nutrients, the vitamins and the minerals in some form to give with the insects. So that was a few years later to come from Janine, but I went back and I proposed to the facility that I was working with at the time that we switched to this diet and they tried it. Uh, around that time, I was also starting to do home care for them. So I was working less in the facility and more with certain species at home. They found it very complicated to execute <laughs> in the hospital. I had no problem utilizing it in my home-based home care operation. Um, 
But the results were startling that first season of using it and seeing that, in fact, not only were birds beginning to survive past nestling stage, but they were actually thriving into fledgling and the survival rate in care was increasing. Um, still had a problem with dirty, you know, messy looking birds because they had a bunch of volunteers who were unskilled and hand feeding them this goop. But um, overall you could see, hey, we're onto something there. And so I kept in close contact with Janine after that first year. I wanted to learn more about how we can do better for these songbirds while they're in our care. Because in my mind, what I was, what I felt the biggest challenge was this facility that was taking in for songbirds that um, they struggled the most during the baby bird season when they had the highest volume of birds in care and one of the biggest problems was raising these nestlings and getting them to fledgling stage and ensuring that they had proper nutrition so that was the first hurdle that I wanted to see this facility at that time overcome and then as I progressed in my work, I, you know, <laughs> my, my lifelong goal is to see every wildlife facility that cares for songbirds achieve optimal nutrition for their babies, plus a whole bunch of other stuff that I know we're going to talk about. But it was that one experience 22, 23 years ago now that I went, aha, of course, we should strive to feed them a diet that is close to their natural diet as possible. Why on earth would we be trying to feed them anything else? It's, uh, I had a similar moment with seabirds. I did, it, it came late because I started off at a facility that just fed fish or fish slurry for um, seabirds. And then I went to a facility that was um, more, they, their protocols were built around mass events and so they were going for the most streamlined easy effective and uh, based on things like waterproofing more than nutrition because they were going to be in care for a very short period of time but there was going to be a lot of birds in one pool at one time and fish in a pool can be complicated because of oils and waterproofing so their solution was to feed a grain-based slurry and it caused things like, especially in species that swallow their own feathers, feather ball impactions in their GI, which were deadly. And wow. the solution to that was to feed them a papaya enzyme as well. <laughs> and it's a little bit like the swallowed the fly who, sw you know, um, yeah. but it, it was a solution and it, they, it worked. And, it, and in, a, in, a limited, in a limited time and care situation, um, that's also catastrophic and you're trying, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the decision to do it that way because yeah. given the parameters of, you know, working with suddenly having 800 birds in care or something like that, that it may have, you know, it, it worked, it, it got the job done, but in a day-to-day -day rehab setting, that stuff was basically killing birds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, and I, I had to sneak fish slurry. I knew how to make fish slurry from my past experience and I had to sneak fish slurry in. Um, <laughs> even, 
you know, but like that moment of just like, why in the world would you put a grain in the belly of a Piscivore? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, I mean, obviously we can, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, very smart people who are like, you know, you can have genetically modified food and people can be fed, fed nutrition pills and they will get the same vitamins that they need, you know, and it's, it's like, it's like the skeptics versus the organic food, you know, and you can read these debates online if you actually want it. I, I'm not going to provide any links to anybody out there in TV land, but uh, you can go on the internet and see people argue about things like that in the GMO human food debate. Sure. But here in, here in wildlife rehab, it just, it makes sense to, um, not improve on nature exactly i and i think that's when i think about my my own work i think i have always strived to you know keep their care as natural as possible keep their care as consistent with their natural wildlife as possible because in my mind, that's that runs parallel with the idea of doing no harm. And, and there are other choices beyond nutrition that can be made on behalf of our patients while in our care that we may not know the degree of harm it causes. So if you try to stick to what you do know about their natural history and you do know about their needs, then you can feel fairly reassured that you're, you are doing the very best you can for them. I had a wildlife rehabilitator. This was uh, when I was just a little puppy and she, I was setting up a reptarium. I, type of housing that Veronica and I are quite familiar with, which is basically, it's awesome because it doesn't mess up bird feathers. It's a yes. soft-sided uh, place. It's for, they call it reptariums. They don't make them anymore. It's very sad, sad, sad. But um, in any case, I was setting up a reptarium for, at the time, named a rufous-sided toey, now known as the spotted toey. And the rehabilitator who was giving me instructions on doing it said, and remember, He's a toey. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and she just made this little scritch, 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 right? With her feet. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And so I scattered a bunch of leaves and like forest litter on the floor yeah. of the thing. And it was astonishing, right? Just like I, we put this bird in there, totally stressed, totally freaked about being in our hands in our captive situation. And when we put him into the housing that was set up, he immediately went about acting more normal. Like, was he still stressed? Of course he was. Was he still, you know, terrified? Of course he was. But he also had some leaves to kick around. Yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, and you could see, I mean, I don't know if you could see it. I felt like I could feel his stress level diminish. And it's not like we even were being that great about putting like mealworms in the leaves. He just had leaves to kick around. Mm -hmm. yeah. We had a one more thing about that. A different example, Laura and I were in Michigan on an oil spill. And actually this took place in 
um, Illinois. I'm sorry. There was a spill within the spill. During the Michigan spill, we got diverted over to Chicago land for another um, tar sand spill that had happened there. Pipelines breaking, basically. Um, and this one hit a pond that was full of snapping turtles. Like 35 pound snapping turtles. Oh my word. They were huge. Um, wow. Interestingly enough, they're not that hard to handle. If you've handled an eagle, you can handle a snapping turtle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't um, know they could get that big. That's amazing. I, it, it means they're pretty old if they're that big. Um, I, I gathered from watching them and working with them that snapping turtles are functionally immortal. <laughs> it was, I, I watched a guy roll down. He was, it was a dirt, it was a, semi it was a semi dump truck of polluted soil being dumped to be shipped off to indiana at some point because uh -huh. that's how that's what cleanup is as you move your pile yeah. of dirt from here to there yeah and um and as they were dumping this soil i just happened to be there and i looked up and here comes rolling down the pile a gigantic snapping turtle in fact the very guy who i'm talking about when the day i got him he rolled down a pile of dirt and when he hit the ground he hit the ground all four legs out ready to kill oh my gosh and, and i was just like what a guy you know i mean he was like this is the weirdest thing i've ever been in but i am i'm ready to take on all comers and uh, <laughs> it's only defense. but when we got him into we had him i had him in a a six foot diameter metal stock tank. Aquatic turtle, he needed to be in water, but all day long, he's just like making this horrible noise on the metal bottom, just yeah. scratching, grinding on it. Yeah. And I had just gotten, just, just acquired this marvelous book. Oh, I think I could probably pull it out, maybe. Oh, uh, Turtles of the United States and Canada. Turtles of the United States and Canada. Magnificent book. I don't know if I can actually reach it. If I could, I would, and I'd pull it out, and I'd be like, you guys should look at this book. You should own it yourselves. It only costs like $300. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Every reference library is complete with one of those. <laughs> yes. And But anyway, I was reading The Natural History of Snapping Turtles, not something I was born knowing. And... Uh, Turns out the snapping turtle's method of hunting is to burrow into the river bottom and wait for something tasty to swim by. Ah, interesting. And so I went and got a bunch of pea gravel and put the and lined the bottom of the tank with about six inches of pea gravel, and he stopped trying to dig through the bottom of the tank and just settled into it. Yeah. And it oh. was like. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was the relief was palpable for everyone, you know. Aww. So how yeah, do you? Even me. <laughs> I I just lived that whole experience. As soon as you said he was scratching on the side of the tank, it just my chest tightened. I was so Absolutely. worried for it. <laughs> so thank you. What you know? Um, I I got to tell you that the person who sit who made the spotted. To, like I think about that moment of being instructed on that spotted toey and their needs based on their natural history. Like I, I use that moment and it's so portable that I, I apply it to the writing of poetry. It's so portable that I can apply it to, you know, doing woodworking 
you know, of just like working with the way things actually are and it yeah. makes it just go better. It's, I, it's a little bit under, maybe, okay, forget about the woodworking so much, but definitely the poetry and every other animal in care, every other animal I've ever cared for has benefited from the day that Lori said that to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was someday in 1999. I, I completely appreciate that moment. And I think it's also, yes, it's about paying, it's about paying attention to the way things are, the way they go, the way they're supposed to be, what their world is like. And you can apply that, like you said, to your poetry. I think it's applicable to woodworking. It's, it's applicable to my relationship with my horse. It's, it's paying attention. It's um, having, learning the art of feel, and that's not necessarily feel with your hands. It's feel through your eyes. It's the power of observation. It's listening and not necessarily listening with your ears. So, um, and it's, that's a, that's a really important skill for wildlife rehabilitators. Uh, it's, you know, there's certainly the medical side, the technician side of our work that is essential and necessary. That's medical care is half of what we do, but husbandry is the other half of what we do. In fact, I'd argue to say husbandry is probably more than half of what we mm -hmm. do. And, um, and you need that skill to do it well, to really, to give care to those animals. How would you, if you were training somebody, say that you, uh, just say the opportunity comes up to train somebody. And how- <laughs> Every May. <laughs> <laughs> how would you, um, how would you go about teaching somebody the value of that skill and how to how to develop it in themselves well i think one of the things that we just looking at the process that we have here as much as i would like it to be very individual you know take individuals under my wing individually and bring them along through the unique experiences that they're going to have here we have to make it a little more standardized, but um, I think one of the places where I really like them to start is one, they may only be exposed to a couple of species initially. And I wanna talk about the natural history. I want to make sure that opportunity has been created or outside of here, they're finding opportunity to see what those birds do for a living out in the wild. Um, I feel strongly that that is where it begins. If you don't know what these amazing beings do in their daily lives out there and what they do out in the world throughout a calendar year, thinking about all of our migratory birds, mm -hmm. um, it's gonna be challenging to support their needs while they're in your care in a wildlife hospital. So natural history is where it begins for me. But also 
observation skills are really important. So, you know, once we have an understanding of what the natural history of this bird is, and most of our new volunteers and our interns come on board when the baby bird season begins. And so I always think that that's a really, we're really privileged to be able to be part of that, their lives. Like, oh my goodness, here they come in this tiny little unrecognizable blob of flesh. And then when they leave our doors, they're this magnificent beauty of, you know, feathered perfection. Um, that's remarkable in and of itself. But through this process, you also witness their natural history unfolding before your eyes. And there's things they're going to need uh, so that they can continue that development as close to their natural process as possible. So being able to get out, observe in the wild, but then also take your observations there and apply them in the wildlife hospital is critical. So we talk about things like, you know, your experience with the towhee and what it's doing in its space, how it's interacting with its environment, what what purpose does that hop scratch method um, support in its natural history? What can we use here to support that behavior and ensure that they're yielding the resorts, the rewards of hopping and scratching. Are they going to reveal some worms? Are they going to reveal some seeds? Um, you know, just things like that. And I think the other component of observation is also being able to discern what's normal, what's not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we have um, a young swallow that's progressing along and we've been out into the wetlands and we've seen the young swallows in their crushes and we've seen them take off as a group and fly together and start hunting. Um, we've seen them express vocalizations among each other, alarm calls, and we have an individual in care who isn't demonstrating some of those behaviors which we know are natural for that stage, for that species. That's an important observation to make. It's important to have that knowledge to make that assessment that, hey, you know, this group of 25 cliff swallows and we have this one dude who sits in the corner all the time and he's kind of quiet, but you know, he eats and does stuff, but he's not really interacting with the group. There might be a problem there mm -hmm. knowing how, you know, highly social and gregarious they are as a group, pretty much at any age, actually. Right. So then you're, then, you know, you're like an, an early detection system and you can get ahead of it perhaps before exactly. it turns into a big disaster. Next thing you know, you've got a guy with like, you know, some, you know, ailment that is a secondary result of what the, whatever had gone wrong at first. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, those with, and, and it's probably true with many different um, species of wildlife, but with songbirds, I always feel that it's a very short window of time that you have to identify some, some behavior, something that is giving just the most subtle indication that there's something not quite right. And if it's something not quite right medically, you know, you have a, <laughs> you have an, a lot of amount of time to respond and fix that issue. And if it's not identified, then, you know, a few days later, we could have a bird who we may not be able to turn around. Yeah. Um, I think it's a manageable skill to obtain for someone who's new to this work with just taking on a couple of species at a time. And so our internships are eight weeks. 
and they get a heavy, heavy dose of swallows in that eight weeks. So my hope is by the end of that eight weeks that we would have an intern who would be able to walk into an aviary of 25 fledgling cliff swallows and be able to pick out an individual or two among that group who may not be thriving um, or a, there's something about their behavior that raises a question that mm -hmm. they're able to be observant enough and pay attention enough to understand what that is. Because, you know, the other thing is we're dealing with prey species and sometimes their, their signals aren't overt. So you really have to be a good listener, mm -hmm. a good observer. Um, and it's hard, I've noticed, for people to shift gears among multiple species um, in the context of baby bird season and be able to um, make informed assessments about that. Uh, because even as youngsters, their behaviors are unique to species. Um, so a Buick's wren who's not thriving or a Buick's wren who's progressing along and demonstrating, you know, impeccable self-feeding skills, um, their behaviors are going to be very, very different from a black Phoebe, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are, those are sort of the, the essentials for when someone who is new starts out with us is I really, really want them to walk away with uh, a good understanding of the natural history of the species that they're going to be responsible for while they're with us. And I really want them to learn how to pay attention. Like don't get all caught up in learning how to splint a wing or, you know, assess a molt, mm -hmm. age a bird by its molt, <laughs> you know, which a lot of students, that's what they want to come learn. And that's good. That's important. But to, I think, really have a foundation in this work, in the work we do here with the songbirds, those are two essential skills is understanding the natural history and knowing, knowing how to observe and pay attention. I, I would agree that in, in all, in all wildlife rehab, those are definitely, uh, they're, they're the, th they're the things that you have to stand on. You don't really have anything else. You have natural history and you have what you can deduce. And uh, it's not, it's not enough, you know? I mean, when we're, you know, when we're treating some, a species like brown pelican, you know, we have to um, take the natural history and then we have to run it through an aviary aider because we are not going to create anything close to what a brown pelican, and if it's a juvenile, a brown pelican has to be able to grow up and, you know, uh, then go adapt to. And we don't have a way to recreate. You can give a brown creeper, you know, something that resembles uh, a tree bark. Mm -hmm. And that's not enough, but it's, we're not even coming close to the North Pacific Ocean that you have to get your food that's 75 feet below you right now. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, it's, it's a little bit like translating, you know, Czechoslovakian poets 
into, you know, French and you're somebody from Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we have to take that, which is completely foreign to me and turn it into this, which is also completely foreign to me, but hope that it approximates that in a way that works inside that Pelican's mind. Right. And still have the same meaning. <laughs> yes. And I, I, but I do think it's possible. I mean, we do get good at assessing flight in an aviary. Yes. Right. And there's like, there's no swallow that can do what a swallow does in an aviary. No, absolutely not. It's, I mean, they're the aerialists of the world. I mean, they yeah. are, right? They are. I mean, is there anybody that's better? Nope. <laughs> I, nope, there isn't. Nope. Solve that one. <laughs> I've seen a lot of them around the world and I can tell you there is nothing better. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm we can just wrap that up right here. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, 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 we'll wait. No, but to I mean, your, your point about that. <laughs> to my best bird in the world page. Gonna do a link to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. We can do that. The best bird. Well, you know, I mean, we don't. If there's people out there still debating it, they're just they're just duplicating effort. Yeah. Well, they're wasting time. They could be working on other solving problem yeah, solving. Because this one is solved for sure. Um. Well, I think that uh, you know, one of the things that I one of the things that I w really wanted to touch base with you today about is how do how how do you sustain a commitment to excellence over time? Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, th I think you do. So it's not, you know, so like, but do you, is that something that you feel like you have to think about or is this, you're just driven by it so much that it, you don't even have to ponder it? Well, I think it's a combination of both um, because if I didn't question it constantly, then I... I might forget to hold myself accountable to maintaining it. Um, you know, I think what motivates me the most to do things the way I do them here is these incredible birds. I think back when I first started birding with my birding mentor, Rich Stalka, and I had been birding with our local Audubon chapter before I met Rich and I had been, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I remember my grandmother taking the binoculars off the kitchen table and saying, oh, you know, look at the Oriole, look at the hummingbird outside on her back porch at the feeders. So I'd always been very aware of birds and observing them in the wild, but I didn't really know a lot about what they were doing out there until I got involved with Audubon. And then I really didn't kind of become immersed in their role in the natural world and how just uh, incredibly complex the life of a songbird of any species is. And I mean, you could say the incredible complex life of any wild animal. Uh, they have lives just like us, right? That they're mm -hmm. living out there doing their own thing and challenges that they face and uh, problems that they overcome and joys and victories that they savor, 
you know, they're, they're not unlike us, except they're way more special. <laughs> so when I birded with Rich, he just really opened my eyes to their magic. They're incredible. We should revere them. So get a little jittery. <laughs> but I think what I, I think about the privilege of working with them and there is a, uh, like once they leave my doors and go back to that life that they need to live, I need to be certain that I did everything within my power to do the very best for them. To make their time here as bearable as possible, right? Mm -hmm. To tend to everything that I can bring to them to bring them comfort um, and also to keep them safe and to treat their wounds and injuries and illness and et cetera, to the best of my, my ability, my knowledge base. And if I don't have it, I reach out to my vet to help me, but that I, I don't want to be the one who takes their second chance away. Mm. So that's probably what, what keeps me accountable for my work and, um, helps me always question, am I doing the very best for this bird? So the other thing that helps me in kind of a weird way, but I think that um, being aware of the challenges that other rehabilitators face um, and when someone comes to me with um, something that they're struggling with, a species they're struggling with, or a husbandry issue that they're struggling with, or maybe they don't have the decision-making power within the facility they volunteer or work with to improve some aspect of care. Uh, and I see the results of whatever this issue is, those those birds are struggling with at that facility. I look at what we do and it just, it reaffirms that we're on the right path here. <laughs> we can always do better and, and we try to do that. Um, but also helping others improve their standard of care helps us improve our standard of care. Because it, mm -hmm. it causes me to stop and reflect and look at other other areas in our work where we can improve, other um, parts of our process where we can improve. Um, you know, and I think it's sometimes it's an improvement that is, you know, it's about efficiency, which is not a very glamorous aspect of our work, but honestly, <laughs> it's necessary. Uh, because, you know, even the silliest little thing, like wanting to be able to quickly grab for some medical instrument, if it's not in its place, <laughs> if it wasn't put away correctly, you know, you're slowing down my treatment plan here. <laughs> exactly. You, this wasn't, this wouldn't apply to songbirds very much, but, you know, I introduced to Humboldt Wildlife Care Center a particular way to fold large sheets, so that so that <laughs> every it. so that you every opening of it is a usable shape. Yes, 
right? Because if you're working by yourself and you need to grab a sheet to handle a pelican or a hawk or whoever, and you have to refold the sheet because they folded it all long ways. Yeah. Right. So, and explaining this to somebody who has no idea why I'm being this particular about a sheet does make me look a little bit like a lunatic. <laughs> that is not something that you should put your put you on yourself. <laughs> I, I don't think it makes you look like a lunatic at all, though I've shared those same thoughts going, I, I know they think this is absolutely ridiculous that we're having to review the proper folding of each style of towel, mm -hmm. but it's necessary. And then, so I'd like to know though, when you break that down for whoever you're teaching and explaining uh, the form and functionality of that process, do you feel they get it? Or do you feel yeah. like they have to be put in a position of frustration on their own when they go to reach for that sheet and it's not folded correctly to finally get it? Well, um, I, uh, as a former mime, <laughs> I do act out the frustration for them when I'm doing the initial explanation, <laughs> you know? So I, I try to make it real. I try to make it vivid. Um, Good. I mean, I don't stomp up and down like I would do in real life, but you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, I, I find that, yeah, those are, there's always somebody there's, 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 there's volunteers or there's people who, um, you know, you, you try and they're and and a challenge is to find them some, you know, because they're just, maybe they don't retain things well or whatnot. Um, or, you know, or maybe they're never going to advance to a level where they're handling an animal that they would actually need the sheet to do that. Yeah. I'm, uh, in the past few years, speaking of this specifically to the this sheet folding issue, is I did learn that grade school kids nowadays, like since like that they've now gotten old enough to come be volunteers at the clinic, mm -hmm. um, were taught that it was hamburger versus hot dog in the uh, folding of. Oh, that's and, interesting. I, I did. I thought it was interesting. I also thought it was like mildly insulting to insist to use that. I was like, I'm going to tell grownups to fold sheets hamburger style, not hot dog style. But, and that seemed that seemed wrong. But on the but once I got over that and realized, that, no, this is communicating. Yeah. I, and I need yeah. to go with it. I don't yeah. like it, but I need to go with it. Yeah, sometimes you have to make some uh, concessions to get to the end goal. Yeah, so long exactly. As it cost a life. Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, you know, one of the, oh darn it, I've lost my train of thought. Um, see if I get it back real quick. Probably not. Well, I think, you know, we're looking at, Oh, I remember what I was going to say. I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that I find are, they're, they're psychological gestures, almost specific, almost only they're psychological gestures. Like, you know, there's a particular towel 
that a volunteer donated and they were she brought them in from costco and it was a big old stack of white washcloths that were square square white washcloths very utilitarian and uniform and i was like from now on and we don't use at our clinic we do not use paper towels everything is we every when you dry your hands you use a dish rag i mean a dish towel and then it goes in the laundry and we wash we wash tons of dish towels a day probably probably makes up a third of our laundry is dish towels from you know usage but and i was like there will be no more mix and match dish towels in the exam room from now on we'll just use these white towels in the exam room and the reason wasn't because that's the right towel to use it was just because it helps me it helps me feel like i'm on top of things it's it's a gesture right that i've just like no we're making all nice and it's tidy in here i when i look in the when i look into the exam room from the hallway and i see the towels stacked on top of the exam room refrigerator i'm like okay we've got that under control and it's just like one little thing that i can put to bed and it's it's just tidy it's like it's like washing the sink you know it's it's like it's like it's like a a two-minute vacation in my day that i give to myself scrubbing out a stainless stink you know and i'm i you know i I, and i find that those you know so and i try to train people to find those things for themselves yeah and then if it matters to them introduce it to us and we will we'll 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 make it universal yeah you know i mean i try to support people in fight in finding ways that help them um, feel confident about their ability to do excellent work. Right. Yeah. And the, so that it, it matters, it, you know, and to go back just a little ways to what we were talking about earlier with like, you know, listening, you know, I've, it's, it's a struggle to get a new person to, and I feel really grateful by the way, that I was trained by such awesome people, like such as John Huckabee, vet up at pause in seattle who did not ever discourage my uh theorizing about why a patient would be acting a certain way Mm -hmm. he just led me into good information to support that theorizing Mm, yeah right he didn't he didn't say oh you don't know would you just let the experts handle this uh you know, so yeah. like when we were working with a mountain lion, we did not say mountain lion in Washington. We did say cougar, but we're in California. Ah. So we were working with this cougar bait, you know, and, but like, you know, my questions about like, oh, is this okay? Or should we be doing that? Or I'm worried about X, you know? And mm-hmm. it, so I, I was supported in my apprenticeship by really fantastic mentors. And I try to return the favor to new people. And it can be challenging because it is. Yeah, yeah. The the intuition side of where information comes from, which is not unsupported by observation. Right. Is like how to balance that. You know, I some of the times I'm like, I will I will say something like, if you have set up an animal's housing and you go in there, if it's big enough for you to go in there, like an aviary or, yeah. you know, a place for raccoons or whomever, and you hate it, 
you have to take that information to heart. And now you, but now, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. So now you have to apply a kind of a scientific rigor to discover what you hate about it. Right. You know, sometimes it comes with a flash. You're just like, you look in there, somebody's going to get killed by that. Right. And you just yeah. know it. And it doesn't, and it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, you have to change it because if you had that thought and then you don't fix it and then the tragedy happens, now you have that to live with the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. That, that doesn't help you become a good caregiver. That damages your ability, you know? I, your point about intuition is um, it's a valuable point because I think sometimes if you have someone that you're teaching or even yourself and you're trying to just go by academics and instruction manuals and all this stuff and you ignore these gut feelings that you have, these things that pop into your head like, that's not right or I have a feeling about that. Uh, you're going to get into trouble because mm -hmm. one of those bad feelings is going to come to light sooner or later. So I am a strong proponent of also relying on your intuition as well, because somewhere in there you have a basis that's guiding that, that thought or that feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not as like flaky or irrational as saying intuition makes it sound. It's, it's, it's solid information that that's just the way, that's just the way you have access to it. It's not necessarily, um, I, I, well, I find that that's a very challenging thing to teach, um, because it's a, to teach yourself to trust your intuition is a challenging thing to, um, in any field, I would imagine this is the case. Yeah, I agree. And. I think, you know, the thing about gut feelings and intuition is those are, that is an informed thought that is in your brain. It's informed based on layers of experience, big and small, and maybe you may not be able to identify those crystallizing moments or moment that is bringing up that that question for you, but it, they are informed and it's based on experience. And so, you know, the idea of intuition and gut feelings isn't easy to teach, but teaching how to make informed decisions and offering experiences is. And so I think the student, when given the opportunity to have the freedom to go, I have a, I have a feeling about this. I have a thought about this, my impression of this, then, then that that is development of their intuition mm -hmm. and their gut experience, their gut feeling about something. So to circle back to the beginning of what we were discussing, um, Janine Perlman, right? She had an intuition about yeah. diet. Yeah. And then she applied, I mean, a scientific method to right. developing her diet. And now it's a diet that 20 years after, down the road, as many, many people are using, I'm using it. I'm grateful to, I'm grateful to the work that she's put into that. You know, I see that diet. I see, I see her work in the vibrancy of our patients. Yes. And it, you know, I, and then I have some, you know, then, then there's people like her that also, you know, there's nicely folded towels 
there's properly folded sheets, and then there's the heroes. Who also, you know, like you think, well, you know, there's somebody out there working to make a diet. The least I can do is adhere to the recipe and note my results, you know, um, and uh, boy, I tell you one thing, I do love the vitamin paste and oil. I, do, I have such, nice, a, isn't it? I have a, such a, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, like I haven't done it. I've read the analysis, but I haven't done any of it. I'm just like, I'm just taking what this person is saying and I'm applying it and I'm just getting really, you know, as was said back in the olden days, kick-ass results. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, and it's, you know, it's, it's magnificent. And, and it is magnificent. And um, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the results speak for themselves. <laughs> Know, they're right there living in the flesh and feather in front of you <laughs> you there's not a lot you can argue with that um and you know i you might think, be a results oriented person <laughs> a little bit <laughs> a little bit <laughs> I, I like a good result a good process is fine but if it doesn't lead to a good result too <laughs> Like the thing that you said about uh, the, the, the dish towels, you know, being like a moment of joy for you and making mm -hmm. you feel like things are in order, even though everything else may be in hell and chaos. Uh -huh. <laughs> I have that too. I, and I'm very attached to those things. And I am not shy about telling people, volunteers and interns, hey, it just makes me feel like we things have, have things under control here when there's not water and food smeared all over the clinic kitchen floor. You know, it just. <laughs> yeah, it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's just really important to me. Well, you and know, I, 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 I manage it because I'm busy. <laughs> I cheated because I arrived at that um, state by my, you know, my, the, the preparatory work I did to become a rehabilitator, um, restaurant work and the idea of you have a section and if it looks like shit, that's cause you did it. Yep. And, and you're the one that's going to be here an hour after everybody else cleaning. And so you clean as you go. And just like, yep. just like staying oh, on top of the you go. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you just you know, it's an unfolding disaster, but it's not an unexpected it's not an emergency. Summer is not an emergency. We know it's coming. Yeah. Um, it's it's a disaster because we're overworked and underpaid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, obviously if the need that wildlife rehabilitation addresses was being addressed at the level at at the level that it's actually needed, there would be significantly more rehabilitators, and they would all be much better funded. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just heard that um, four hundred and sixty billionaires spent eight hundred and eighty-one million dollars on the midterm election, and all we managed to do with that midterm election was we didn't make the world a better place. We just all we managed to do is keep fascist thugs from taking over. Yeah. And it cost us $881 million. Well, it cost them billionaires 880, but that's $881 million that could have gone to, I mean, we're getting ready to move our facility and the land we're buying is a bargain, $250,000 for oh over an acre in 
California with a building that already has plumbing and electricity. So the deal is fantastic, right? But $250,000 is a lot of money to an organization such as ours. So the 881 million sort of stuck in my mind yesterday when I read that. I was like, yeah, I, I can see why. You creeps. I, I need a quarter of a million dollars. And you had 881 million of them and you bought political ads with it. <laughs> and you still have billions. <laughs> and you still have billions. Yeah. Something isn't right there. <laughs> Something is definitely not right there. So, yeah. so that leads, that's a sort of great uh, place to segue into this other thing. Because one of the things that you do differently than most other wildlife rehabilitation organizations or rehabilitators is you engage in real honest advocacy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm compelled to do it. So, um, I mean, I feel like I know what compels you, but what and compels I, you? And you as well, mine. Uh, yeah, I've, I've had uh, ups and downs with it. And, you know, if you want to know about that, I'd be happy to tell you. But what yeah. I, I feel like I know what compels you. But um, what does compel you? Well, I mean, it, it's just as simple as my love for these birds. Mm -hmm. and, tried... and if you want to go like one layer deeper, it's also the lack of love that others appear to have for these birds. Um, you know, and we see this every day in our hospitals, right? Just these yes. horrible, horrible things that happen to these individuals that we see. And then we multiply that by the tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. And we know these things are happening to their, their brethren, their kind, the world over. So I, you know, I can't help but speak on their behalf because no one's listening to them, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, with their populations of so many species of songbirds are hanging on by a thread around the globe and no one's doing anything is what it feels like to me constantly. So I feel like that's, um, that's my responsibility because I have this incredible gift of being able to to take care of the individuals who need the help so it's like the uh yeah i mean it's just i, I can't imagine not doing it that, right i guess that's what you feel like when you're compelled to do something yeah, exactly i think so yeah. <laughs> you know i oh, can't imagine sitting by quietly after Thousands of birds have been in my care, slaughtered by free roaming cats and not say something about that. Like who the hell do I, you know, where do I get off being silent about something like that? I don't. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, <laughs> I don't enjoy that privilege of being silent. Do you feel like there's a cost? Have you, yeah. to your, like you have to manage like, the loss of support from certain segments of the population. If you start speaking too loudly, getting out of your lane, they might think like you just stay there and take care of those songbirds lady. And don't you go messing around in the politics around here. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you know, as I do, that it's sure being brave, being courageous, <laughs> shooting your mouth off before you really think it through. <laughs> okay, that, that's my middle name. Um, in many contexts of my life, <laughs> but, but uh, it's you know, it's it's painful. It's always painful. It's, you feel unheard most of the time. Mm -hmm. You're constantly thinking of other ways to say things so you can be heard. <laughs> like, well, that message didn't work. Let me try and reword it and <laughs> deliver it in a different way. Um, and yeah, and feeling like you're putting things in jeopardy by saying something. I, that whole Caltrans experience was mm -hmm. where we fought for the Cliff Swallows in Petaluma was horrible is probably right up there with one of the worst experiences in my life but but also one of the best because I learned a whole lot about you know how to navigate the system mm -hmm. <laughs> and I learned a whole lot about um, making a negative impression to uh, you know part of the public and the power wielding entities uh, but I also learned that there's a lot of uh, strength to draw from, um, from your community and your colleagues. And I also learned that, you know, not everybody's going to agree with you, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yes. On a lot of things, like I love peanut butter, but there's a million other people who hate it. <laughs> uh -huh. So, uh, and that's okay. Just because they don't agree with you doesn't mean that you stop talking about what needs to be talked about. Because at somewhere along the line, you know, justice will be served. Transformation will happen. Uh, people will evolve. They will come to recognize that they can they can change their behaviors. They they come they will come to a point where they want to change their behavior. I mean, we do have people in our little community of Sebastopol who have gone on to build catios for their free roaming cats. You know, every catio in this town is a victory in my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it was worth that day 10 years ago where I made someone cry. Uh -huh. <laughs> <in our class. laughs> you know, and I, I don't feel bad about it anymore. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, it is hard. You do, you pay a personal price, I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. There are days during the summer when I feel completely beaten down and like, I don't think I'm going to be able to accept the care of a, another little fledgling who's been slaughtered and robbed of its chance at life because someone was too lazy to make the decision to safely contain their cat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think I can't have the conversation with the, this person today because I just don't have the fortitude to do it. I definitely have those days where I make an active choice not to say anything, but uh, we do follow it up with a letter and a brochure on safely containing your cats. So, you know, I'll, I'll make my point somehow uh, and I'll give them that necessary information and I'll speak on behalf of that slaughtered little mockingbird um, but it may not be in that moment because I'm not going to be effective or uh, I just need to take a moment of self-care. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and and divert my energy toward saving the ones that I can. But advocacy is hard work, and it's I think and I think you and I probably had similar or shared experiences when we started to um, work on the advocacy committee together for CCWR that uh, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to get an idea, a a mission, a topic um, that you want to champion. It's hard to get it off the ground. It's hard to formulate an effective plan around it. It's challenging to get your message heard in the way you want it heard and in the way you feel it's going to have the most power to affect change to be the most effective. Um, But, you know, you didn't stop trying. I didn't stop trying. You know, we're still independently and collectively doing our work as advocates for those animals who we love. Mm -hmm. Right. So you just keep, sometimes you have to take a day off. Yeah. And (laughs) I think there's rewards that you don't know are coming. Yeah. That do come, you know, Um, the respect from colleagues that you didn't know you were earning. That isn't just like a feather in your cap, but it actually makes your work easier, you know, because next thing you know, there's an organization that's reaching out to you about how they can support your work better. And you're like, ah, I didn't know that was coming. Yeah. I, I didn't ask for it. And, and, but yet here it is. And I, and you do get to use it. And uh, you mentioned, you know, how you take care of yourself. And I think that that's uh, really, I, we're, I see that I've been, I've had you on this for over an hour now. So I, want to respect your time and whatnot but i do want to bring in one other topic which is you know we get called all kinds of things when i moved to california was the first i ever heard this term but i've heard i heard it non-stop for like the entire time i've been here which is wildlife rehabilitators are a bunch of bunny huggers (laughs) right and i was like bunny huggers You can't touch a bunny. (laughs) You can't hug a bunny. Um, But, you know, one of the things that like when I'm doing volunteer interviews, bringing people on board and stuff like that is I warn them that this work um, exposes you to traumatic situations. Mm -hmm. You're going to see more wet ends of a humerus that you should never have seen. Yeah. Than you ever were gonna. That's you know you are one hundred percent putting yourself in the path of sorrow, yeah. and 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 not just sorrow, but also like distress. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is why the people when I'm time, when it's time for like you know serious staff acknowledgments. One of the things that is always right at the front of my mind to acknowledge staff for is their bravery and putting themselves in a position where they're going to feel bad about an outcome. Yeah. Like you are totally exposing yourself to risk to, for the rest of your life, feeling like you killed that bird and you're not going to like it. Yeah. You're going to hate that every time you have that moment 
where you remember that bird, you are going to hate that. You're just going to, and there's no getting over it. You can say, oh, I've processed it and I've remembered that all these birds, these are their second chance. This is the, you know, and there's a lot of things that we've been told by our mentors coming up that were meant to ease that moment. You know, like um, you did your best. Every bird is, this is their second chance. In nature's eyes, they were dead already. You know, and they, people say stuff, and that helps. And it helps when somebody who you really admire says, hey, you know, I want to trike the loon. And then you're like, oh, that must have super sucked. And yet here you are working with diligence and confidence. Yeah. So obviously you can recover from that. So I really appreciate staff's willingness to, expose themselves to this and it's not like a theoretical exposure you're gonna do it you're gonna get yeah. hit it's like there's yeah, two yeah. kinds of motorcyclists right those that have fallen and those that are gonna right right and that's that you're you don't have a choice on this mm -hmm. no so how do you do you have an a, something to like what do you do to make to make sure that you are not just drowning it in vodka well, I don't like vodka for one. <laughs> so whew, thank goodness that's off the list. Um, you know, I don't know, Monty. I, I, I still, I struggle with it every year. And it's, I think what I'm leaning toward now is it's, I just accept that it's a part of my body. The, uh, the grief, the fatigue, um, you know, the burden of guilt is just here. You just carry it with you and it seeps out when it can. And uh, I think uh, probably what I have, because I, I mean, I really struggled with it. Bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but probably the last five years, I feel like I'm getting a handle on it. So there's very, uh, ritual has a lot to do with how I manage it, process it, make peace with it. So end of season rolls around. I kind of sign off from life for the month of October. Um, don't try to schedule things with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't. Don't ask me to commit with something because I'll probably cancel on you <laughs> at the last minute because I want to say yes, but I, I can't. I just mm -hmm. mentally, physically can't do it. So I've learned to take October off. I mean, I'm still here quietly doing my work with the birds, but the volunteers aren't here. The interns aren't here. I have no schedules, no commitments other than to just make sure everyone in our care is getting the care they need. And then I do a lot of wandering around in my garden. <laughs> mm -hmm. I do a lot of planting of plants. Um, the carcasses, the ones who didn't make it, um, they find a home under a plant in the garden. So, you know, there's a, I think uh, it's symbolic in a way, right? Mm -hmm. We're returning them to the earth. They're bringing new life to this plant. They're going on, they're giving gifts to the rest of the natural world as those flowers bloom, those berries on the elderberry ripen, and so on. So I that's beautiful. That cycle is part of my ritual. Then I think that um, talking about it, 
uh, to who anyone, anyone who wants to listen, who's not going to deem me <laughs> crazy and unfit to drive or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, is also really help, really helpful. But I think just overall acceptance and acknowledgement that, that we, in our work, we carry that burden. It's part of us. And uh, to, to not name it and um, recognize it can be very detrimental, but also to find a way to um, manage it in the moment, I guess. So boundary setting in our work is very important. Um, this spring, I had to set a a boundary that I had been thinking about for a couple of years, um, receiving transfers from another facility who has a very low standard of care. And the birds we were getting were, um, well, it's devastating to receive them, to be mm -hmm. perfectly honest with you. And so this was the year that I said we could not accept transfers. Oh. And part of that was I just didn't feel... I, they need they needed to take responsibility. They needed to hear my words and step it up and and do what was needed to do, not for me, but for those animals in their care. But there was also a very strong component of that that I was making that decision as well for my own mental well-being. I you know, you just like that's bringing on unnecessary grief uh -huh. <laughs> is what it was starting to become. Um, but that I think is, you know, variations of all those feelings are something that each of us experiences. And maybe some um, are masters at compartmentalizing it. I'm, I'm very good at stuffing it all down because the most important thing is the matter at hand in baby mm -hmm. bird season anyway, which is sure. getting these animals the care they require and deserve. But yeah, you can cry later. You cry later. Plenty of time to cry later. Believe me, there's lots of crying going on in October. Tons mm -hmm. of it. At really inopportune times. <laughs> you can see it still seeps out even just in general conversation that's unrelated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, those are just emotions and energy that needs to come out and, and dissipate. Uh, but, you know, everyone has their, their techniques. But I think, like, just thinking about... Um, people who are just coming into this work and the things that you want to share with your interns and your new volunteers making it clear, you know, you're all going to see the wet end of a humorous and many of them. Um, it's important to have those open discussions about it. Uh, we don't want people to be blindsided by it when they start mm. feeling it, but we also want to reassure them that, you know, it's very normal. If you're not experiencing, I'm wondering, <laughs> are you are you really present in your work? <laughs> you know, I mean, part of what we are, um, what makes us able to do what we do so well is our empathy for others. But, you know, with that comes empathy for yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um... The cry later thing is definitely, uh, I don't see a way around it particularly, but 
I do see that it, that has its costs, you yeah. know, because you're basically, you're borrowing future time from yourself. Sure. That you're like, okay, this, 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 at 3.15 a.m., I am going to be very unhappy. And that's fine. I accept it. It's coming. I am already committing to future sorrow. But right mm -hmm. now, I just got to get this done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because your first priority is taking care of that individual or whatever, the 500 you have in care. That's your first priority. When it comes, to, I mean, we make these decisions on physical matters, too. Every time we... And, and I'm not actually good at making this decision, and I, I, I reject it most of the time as a decision that's worth making when you do not clean as you go. Because now you're definitely screwing yourself in the future. <laughs> you're telling your future self, you matter not as much to me as me now matters to me. And I, I don't endorse that. It's, an, it's a mean thing to do to yourself and also to others, you know, so like... I'm, I'm kind of a like, no, the laundry doesn't get backed up. It may have a lot to go because we only have so many machines, but yes. it's always moving forward. There's no, oh, we just let that go. Right. Right. And that's, um, but I think that we do sometimes let it go, right? We do. Sometimes things slip behind and we're like, I guess I'll be up until, you know, midnight cleaning that mess. Yeah. And yeah. that's not what I wanted to do tonight but it is what I'm going to do tonight. So, you know, we make those decisions and we spend that money, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like to think that, you know, that there's a way to approach it so that we can spend that money, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, responsibly. Yeah. So that we're making the choice that we know we know what choice we're making and we know how we're doing it and we largely aren't falling deeper into debt every day mm -hmm. and that we're that we have a way of recompensing you know what we yeah. spend in that manner yeah and i don't even know what that is i i mean it's it's going for walks it's looking at the ocean it's reading it's you know um you know, I mean, one year for me, for Veronica, it was watching Jessica Jones three seasons on Netflix, <laughs> you know, and, and I even, I ended up developing a talk out of that <laughs> because I thought that she, I thought she was basically, and I do recommend this by the way, if it's, okay. still, if it's still available, because while it was all detective and superhero stuff, she did seem very much like a wildlife rehabilitator. Like just All like right, I'm intrigued. Her, her modus operandi matched how I felt internally. I was like, mm -hmm. like she's her metaphor is for my heart. Oh. And, uh, so I, I I got a lot of use out of that. I then sent out, it then made me think it was a superhero thing, and I watched a bunch of very stupid superhero stuff that was not that at all. Before I realized, no, it was just the way that show was written. So you don't have to go off on a superhero binge. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, well, this has been uh, fantastic, and it was everything I hoped it would be. Oh, likewise. Um, I'm super glad that we got a chance to talk. Uh, I'm definitely going to do more of these. I really want to get more of these out so that people can see like who the heroes and the stars and the innovators and the uh, uh, standard bearers for excellence in our work 
uh, is. And I really, I, I appreciate you so much, Veronica. I don't, I don't know if you really know how much that is the case, but I, I just like, I, you know, when I'm doing songbird care, I'm like, don't fuck this up so that you feel like you got to send, send your songbirds to Veronica, learn from <laughs> Veronica and do it as good as she does. That's, that's the way I, that's the way I would honor you. Oh, thank you, Monty. <laughs> um, I, I don't want you, I don't, I hope I'm not instilling fear in people. Well, I, I think want... <laughs> a little bit of fear is not a bad thing. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> this is true, actually, speaking from my own personal fear experiences. But yeah, I, I, um, it's always my hope that people are inspired to do better for these little guys. They deserve I remember it. you telling people in a, one of your talks, you said, yeah, it's more expensive about feeding insects. Yeah, it's more expensive, but you have an obligation to do it anyway. And I was like, man, she cut to the chase. Yeah, it's harder to do it right. Duh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's just it. It's, and there's also, I mean, this is another, this is a whole other podcast, but there is, you know, where songbird care is concerned in our field of work, there's an imbalance there. And there are a lot of programs within organizations that receive a whole lot of support that should otherwise be applied toward our mission, which is to rehabilitate wildlife uh -huh. <laughs> and get them back out into the wild. And too often I see that the songbirds are the underserved population of wildlife hospitals because resources are diverted elsewhere to mm -hmm. maybe animals that aren't being rehabilitated and put back out in the wild or yes. a culture has been created with an organization where other contingents of the wildlife population are deemed more important. Um, and none of that sits well with me. Yeah. So Ditto. you'll never be able to shut me up about that topic. Well, but. um, <laughs> I'm glad about that. And that, that is actually, I'm, I'm, uh, been developing an idea for, uh, a round table discussion. You know, I want to get, uh, for those of you who are uh, just tuning in and you just got here from Mars, January and Marie are two other awesome rehabilitators that um, yes. are also Bird LAX co-founders, January Bill and Marie Travers. And if you know about them, it's probably because of their awesome work that they've done independently, largely, by, you know, by themselves out in the Lower Klamath Refuge and botulism. Uh, response to like in 2020 they responded I believe they treated about 3,000 patients over the course of that summer from a botulism outbreak there so um but anyway January and Marie have done a lot of uh legwork on the uh physiological and psychic problems that happened happened to patients or to animals who are held in permanent captivity, wild animals in permanent captivity. So I'm uh, definitely gonna cover, wanna cover that in the future, Veronica, and I would be very happy to have you part of that discussion. Looking forward to it. Okay, right on. <laughs> um, 
I, I guess uh, if, you, if you'd have any uh, parting words you'd like to say, this is a good time. Well, I mean, I just related to the many things that we've uh, touched on today. You know, I think that it's just, um, let me just say this. <laughs> Speaking to my hero, you, I think it's, um, you set such a beautiful example to to all of us, your colleagues, but, but also to the people who I know you are mentoring, the people who look to you as a mentor within your work, that um, your ethics, holding yourself accountable, when you know better, do better. Those are all really important things for each of us to hold close when we have the gift of being able to work with these incredible, incredible beings. So I would say for anyone who is listening and who has the opportunity to work with wildlife in the way we do, or who is out there serving in an advocacy role for our wildlife, um, to, you know, to keep your ethics in check, um, to, be their voice. Take that seriously. It sounds kind of cliche, mm -hmm. but to know that they they don't I and mean, they have plenty of voices, uh, but to to um, be a translator, I guess, for them to help them better to be better heard by the human ears. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. But I think our our ethics also guide that. You know, they they guide. They guard our work in whatever that capacity is, whether it's advocacy or it's wildlife rehabilitation. You know, if we if we go about having strong ethics in our work, we really can do our work well. We can do our best for our patients. Mm -hmm. And it maybe helps a little bit with how we are able to deal with the the trauma because yeah. we get we can we can lean back on you know because ethics is a group effort you know i mean you obviously personal integrity is your own business but when you're talking about working i mean the work we do is collaborative mm -hmm. and each of us holding ourselves to a standard and being a not a measuring stick or but I feel it's very critical for us to be uh, to support people in expressing their own integrity. You know, that's you can't shame people into that posture. You, it can only be inspired. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's a and that's something that comes back to inspire you. Right. When you're like, I need this person to be inspired and you have, it's, it's difficult times. It's difficult, difficult. To, it's difficult to train. Yeah. And, there's, and there's people who are gifted, you know, there's people, they come along and you're like, oh my God, I'm keeping you forever. You know, because you, you, because you're bringing out the best in yourself, but you're also bringing out the best in me and the clinic when you're here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really 
<laughs> I know those people that you're talking about. It's pretty remarkable. Um, and it also, <laughs> I don't know, it's um, when they come along, you feel like, ah, I have a little, I have a little moment to breathe now. Mm -hmm. This is good. I yeah, because it's like, oh, lazy the two of us are pulling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it is well, nice. Yeah, well, I'm so thrilled we had a chance to talk. And uh, I guess... Me too. Uh, looking forward to looking forward to getting this edited and uh, and up there. I think uh, a lot of people are going to really benefit from hearing you uh, in a discursive fashion. But thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Monty. All right, we'll check you out later. <laughs> and uh, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, Wild There Out in Podcast Landia, this has been New Wild Review, and you were listening to Veronica Bowers of Native Songbird Karen Conservation. Thank you.